0: Hi everyone, this is Timo. Uh, welcome to our very first podcast of Refugee Roads in what's hopefully going to be a series and today I'm joined by...
1: Hey, it's Florian, uh, Timo's best friend and colleague also from Refugee Roads. <laughs> um, I'm exactly. very excited for this first episode uh, where we'll just talk to a couple volunteers who have been on Lesbos more recently than we have.
0: And this is uh, Adrian and Julie. Yeah, they are our guests today and they have worked um, or are still working actually uh, for Lighthouse Relief, an NGO that's operating on the island of Lesbos in Greece. And today we'll talk a bit about their experiences there um, as well as, um, yeah, uh, what happened after the EU-Turkey border tensions um, arose and in the context of the Corona crisis. So thanks so much for being here to talk to us today.
2: might have been on point might have have worked
0: might have worked all right um let's rewind let's let's go all right so um today we're joined uh, by adrian and julie Adrian and Julie, both of them worked in Lesvos on and off for Adrian. It was the beginning of 2020 and Julie um, later in 2019 um, for various NGOs, but mostly Lighthouse Relief. Um, And they they will explain a bit more about what uh, Lighthouse Relief does on Lesvos. But we're here today to talk a little bit about their experiences, their last sort of visit to the island and um, also their kind of process going through evacuating the island, um, in the context of the uh, corona pandemic and that hitting the island, um, of course, and the mainland of Greece. Uh, and then in general, sort of the, the impressions they've taken away from that and also, um, ways forward um what they're kind of yeah thinking about what will happen um to the camps uh on on lesvis but um, also in general their work lighthouse relief uh, as well as the other eight organizations that are still there at the moment um and uh, yeah so thank you very much for joining us today adrian and julie i'm um, very happy hey, to have you thank you for inviting us <laughs> awesome uh maybe you want to give a quick round of introduction uh julie ladies first maybe you can start with uh, just a bit of a background what you did at lighthouse relief and when you worked there
3: sure <clears throat> so um i first went to lesbos in october 2019 uh, volunteered there for about a month with refugee rescue which is an ngo based on the north shore of lesbos uh, at the time they had a land team so it was an emergency response team um we were doing spotting during the day, so watching the sea, the Greek, uh, the Greek waters, to see if there is a boat in distress, and um, we were then welcoming people in the transit camp called Stage Two, where they were brought just after they landed, um, and then in December I started. I went back and started working with Lighthouse Relief uh, in the communications. Um, now, we're the Lighthouse reef is the only emergency response land-based emergency re- response NGO left on the north shore of Lesbos. And so we do the spotting, I told you about, uh, during the night and the day. So we're basically almost always watching uh, to see if there's any boats in distress. We go to the landing when boats are about to land and that we've been informed by uh, our spotters or by the Coast Guard, the authorities. We go there to help them land safely, so they don't capsize. We distribute uh, emergency blankets. We have doctors that come with us to, like maybe give first assistance if needed, and then um, we distribute clothes and blankets and it's kind of first items that they might need, um, some food if they're hungry, some water, before they're transported to the south into Moria camp.
0: Thanks. And Adrian, what about you? When right, did you join? And also
1: a warm welcome from my side.
2: Oh, <laughs> sorry, Florian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was just there for a month and that particular month was very, there wasn't much going on. So I had a nice volunteer experience where I met a lot of inspiring people and had very few um, incidences where we actually had to help um, or we were able to help um, people that landed on the shore. Um, nevertheless, in that during that month, the the experiences I made were very much very intense for me, and yeah, I still think about them. And uh, yeah. I left the island a few days before the uh, quote unquote uh, crazy shit happened.
0: <laughs> when was
2: that?
3: That was um end of February, from the 27th of February onwards. What like, happened? Even, the... even, even a bit earlier,
2: I would say. Do you want to go through what, what happened there, maybe so that people actually. Because I think people realize that something is going on in Lesbos, but not necessarily all the stuff that happened before that you were all aware of.
3: If this fine with you guys, except if you of have more questions
0: for No, this is great. I think maybe just for um, everyone to also understand a little bit before we delve into the the crazy shit that happened. Yeah. Say, um, what kind of what, what was the initial uh, sort of motivation for you to uh, actually work there, and with what kind of mindset did you go and join the NGOs working there? Because for Florian and I, obviously, we we went into these uh, contexts with uh, always very mixed emotions. Um, but, um, I know it's a very subjective issue and a lot of people go and, and try to do something because they, you know, they just see the need to do it or, um, because they, you know, have the ability or the capacity to actually help. And so they want to put that to use, but for everyone, it's a bit of a different story. So maybe you can share yours in a moment.
2: Sure. maybe start. So... It all started when in 2016 I met a, a guy named uh, Timo and he told me about his Re- Refugee Rose film. No I'm joking. It's, I mean, surely <laughs> I was, it, it was, of course, honestly. I was like, what? <laughs> it, it was, of course, an inspiration. I think everyone who is there had a lot of, um, small or big, moments in their life that made them come to the decision that the way they can help is to go to lesbos and be a volunteer i think it's not this one moment um that is super crucial but of course i can remember one a friend of mine um, uh, who worked in a camp in in mainland greece and she told me about her work there and that was so inspiring to hear not necessarily to hear but i think to to talk to a person that has seen these kind of things and and experienced these things and looking into her eyes this is like the feelings that she conveyed without words they were so inspiring that i was inspiring that i was thinking okay i have to at some point go there and help and then uh, julie was there before me and she told me that there is currently at that point in time i think it was around october 2019 um in that village, um, in Scala on the north shore of Lesbos, there is no person among the volunteers that can speak Farsi. And as I speak Farsi, I felt like I felt obliged to, if I have time, to go there and help and possibly translate if needed. And that's how that's ultimately what convinced me. You can do it. Why don't you do it? Mm. How How was that for you, Julie?
3: Um, I mean, for me, back in 2015, when, uh, when the numbers of arrivals on this was really increased a lot, um, and it was a lot in the media and stuff, I, I knew someone who went there. I didn't know her very well, but I was very impressed by, that. I think, that effort, because we were, I was in, what, like, first year of uni, something like that. I was, like, 18 years old, and uh, I was like, oh, someone my age can actually go and help. She was actually a year younger than me, I think, so... Yeah, I was quite impressed to see, oh, we can actually do something. And I think I was telling myself, yeah, I'm going to go as soon as I can. And then, of course, I didn't do it. Um, and so basically, yeah, last summer I finished my studies. And uh, Adrian was on the Sea Watch, on the ship, the Sea Watch. for, And I joined him for a few days there, which kind of was my first door into activism a little bit. Very small door because I didn't do much. Um... But yeah, I felt like I have time now. I finally finished my studies. I don't have any more excuses that are keeping me from doing that kind of stuff that I feel that everyone kind of should be looking into if they can. And so yeah, I just looked up some NGOs and then the first that answered, I went. <laughs>
1: yeah. Julie, I'm wondering, um, that you just mentioned that you spend a couple of days on the Sea Watch. Um, was that that moment that um, Adrian described uh, where you felt okay now I have to like go and do help some more and if yes why was that
3: Um, I don't think there was this one moment Uh, so I studied journalism so I was starting kind of a career in journalism I'd come back from an internship uh, in a big news agency and I was about to yeah to keep going in that and then I was also just a bit kind of, I think, burnt out of journalism already before even starting. <laughs> so I was in a position where I had to, like, I had the opportunity to decide what I wanted to do with my life. And I had these couple of days on the Sea Watch where I just learned more about the situation. Also, it was in Central Med, of course, Central Mediterranean, but I mean, it's all kind of linked. And, um,. Yeah, it was kind of showing me, oh, so here are people that also decided that they don't want to follow, you know, one career track and and start working and keep working in that for the rest of their life and close their eyes to so much of the stuff that's happening in the world. But yeah, it just it was meeting people that, that kind of were showing that it's all these experiences that, that give you opportunities and kind of direct your life in other directions. So for me, it was also a lot of that of like, I felt like I've been studying for five years and I felt like I didn't uh, really know what was happening in the world. And originally I was thinking, you know, if I want to be a journalist, I feel like I need to first live life before I can write about life.
0: That's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it reflects in a way sort of um, a bit the mindset that um, a lot of... um, people who we met at least uh, along our journey had uh, where we noticed it was especially a lot of young people who exactly like you kind of finished their studies and said they don't really have an excuse not to do anything. Um, And it was for us, I don't know how you guys felt, but for us, it was always a bit strange to see that there were so many young people at our age uh, providing support, working in these NGOs. It was very on the ground, very bottom up um, and this sort of more structured organizational type of uh, humanitarian aid that you would you know maybe assume the UNHCR would provide um, it it was not always kind of what was actually driving the response on the ground in those camps or maybe that was just our experience but is that sort of similar to what you saw
3: Uh, personally uh, it is something that that I've been thinking about a lot in the past couple months um, that a lot of the volunteers are what like 20 years old my roommate's for like several months was 19 and she lived there for what four months and unless was I think it is a bit su- very su- not surprising but um, I would say almost shocking that it's young people are taking that into their hands um, mm-hmm. where like yeah of course like we have the time we have the opportunity to do it that all the people don't but it feels a little bit like a lot of the time it's kids organizing to do things
0: that the adults should be doing a little bit? Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, it's kind of like cleaning up after the adults, isn't it? Um, <laughs> a bit at least.
2: I don't know, Adrian, what, what was your impression? It's very similar. Um, oftentimes, after I left, Julie would tell me, we would have phone calls, and she would tell me exactly that um, we're doing the work. Not, like, we're so young, we're having such a responsibility. We shouldn't have that not in that age and i think with the moment that i'm thinking about is yeah standing doing a night shift um on Caracas at that lighthouse and looking out and realizing okay we are we we spotted a boat and we are the only ones that are seeing this boat right now it's kind of in our in our hands whether we we text the, I don't know, we can, we contact the authorities to let them know that there is a boat right now and, um, help them arrive. It's a bit unreal if you think about it like that. Mm. It's, yeah. Poor kids.
0: <laughs> I think that's also why a lot of people go in and out of these jobs, right? Um, or at least again, that's something that we saw as well, where, um, young people go in for two months and then they, um, yeah go back a bit um kind of fuel up with uh some more positive energy and then uh, they they go back and take on these uh incredible yeah amounts of responsibility that they really shouldn't maybe um have all to their own um but um yeah and no, i guess that's also a bit your your kind of how you came in right you you went there for for a month and then you kind of stepped out a bit again adrian right
2: uh, i mean i had to go to uh, a research project so it was kind of job related that i had to leave okay. yeah.
0: and uh so when you said that it hit the fan i'm uh, the shit hit the fan as you said we kind of um we're talking late february um and i don't know i tried to before this, look up a little bit um, what the timeline really is for um, the outbreak on, on Lesbos and mainland Greece. And I think the first case uh, of a woman was in, um, let me check again, um, um, it was mid-March, right? So early March. So exactly that's maybe around that time as well where things got a bit more, um, yeah, uh, definitely more more intense. Um, and so this is just Lesbos, of course. We're not speaking about the mainland right now. But yeah, maybe you can talk us through a little bit about what happened um, and um, how you kind of went through that process of having to evacuate.
3: Yeah, well, actually, um, it, it isn't linked to coronavirus. Uh coronavirus came later. Okay. Um, actually, in terms of coronavirus, of course, the situation is really, really terrible for the people in the camps on, on the Asian island. Um, But somehow Greece has been relatively spared, there's there's only like less than 200 deaths, I think. And for now, yeah, there's no cases in any of the camps on the Aegean island, for now, so... I mean, it's kind of miraculous. Yeah, uh, touch wood. Yeah, we're all touching wood (laughs) right now. Um, But I mean, when Adrian's saying that shit hit the fan, he's talking about the situation before coronavirus Mm -hmm. even really became a problem. Um, so, so in February, there were, of course, there had been tensions building up for a long time on the Asian Islands, um, because they've been kind of made the dumping ground of the EU. Um, I mean, in 2015, thousands of people were coming through there and, and the communities on Lesfos have been really like role models in the way that they welcome the people. All the villagers, you know, the fishermen going out of their, like with their boats every day to rescue people. All the old ladies washing clothes and giving food and keeping stocks of food in their house and stocks of diapers to give the people. So really, these people have been really exceptional in the way that they provided like welcoming. Yeah, they provided welcome and uh, and support for the, for for the people arriving. But now it's it's five years later and there's yeah. over twenty thousand people. Stuck on Lesbos only, and there's over forty thousand people stuck on on the islands, and the EU isn't really taking anyone in. Like these people are stuck there. Uh, in your in your in your last episode of refugee rights, you kind of showed that the olive grove is spreading into the into the near. Well, no, the Moria camp is kind of spreading into the nearby olive grove, but these, for example, this land belongs to people. It belongs to the locals. Um. So. And of course, I think there's about eighty thousand inhabitants on Lesbos, so you can imagine the impact of twenty thousand uh, extremely vulnerable people. Um, so basically, tensions had been mounted like building up for a little while. Uh, some locals were really not happy with the situation on their island, and then the government said that they would um, open, they would create new camps that were closed camps, so basically kind of prisons on the island. To keep when was that? That was, um, I think, beginning of February. Okay. Yeah. Um. So there were there was there was a protest the day Adrian arrived actually.
2: Oh yeah, shit.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um. So there were like very intense protests by the locals against riot police that were sent by the government on the island. So already there was kind of a, a feeling of instability. There were. It was difficult. There were roadblocks. It was difficult to reach the city sometimes, stuff like that.
2: And I think what doesn't what doesn't get clear so far is that this hate wasn't only the hate was directed one to the refugees and one to the NGOs. So the day that I arrived, um, people from the NGO told me, uh, "Don't go into the city." Um, NGO workers have been attacked and I was really scared and I directly took a taxi and went to the meeting point Um, yeah
3: yeah I mean at that that point there were lots of people protesting Um, and yeah like a lot of the locals are just fed up in general but of course for like some of them it manifests in hate towards the refugees and the NGO workers and yeah a lot of people are starting to say stuff like that NGOs are are you know encouraging refugees to come and things like that so yeah there had been like some attacks against NGO workers the refugees are yeah against refugees much more probably um, and then on February 27th in the middle of all that um, the president of Turkey announced that he was opening the border and he wasn't stopping refugees from coming anymore so basically that the EU-Turkey deal was finished that's when the situation really escalated because um, suddenly there was this kind of fear of thousands of people arriving uh just like in 2015 there were also dozens of journalists coming to the island suddenly everyone flocking there all the attention of like the media just zooming into this island suddenly and uh And the people that were already angry and already, like, it was already kind of at a breaking point, Uh, the locals, I mean, suddenly, like, yeah, like hearing all the time about more refugees coming, more people coming. And I mean, for us, basically, I can just talk about our experience in the north, but suddenly it was a very, very calm month and it didn't really increase that much uh, compared to what we were scared that would happen.
2: You mean February? February February, was a calm month, yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but like from the first landing of the day where Erdogan had announced that the border was open, there were only like 10, 15, 20 journalists on every landing with us so it was very difficult to manage and we were getting we were a lot in the media because we are on the front line so you know our logo was everywhere in the media because we are wearing vests with our logo on it um, so we were getting threats online uh, a lot of Trolls on Twitter. And in the south, the situation was really kind of going a bit crazy. There were a lot of NGOs that were attacked. Locals were setting up roadblocks on the roads and basically smashing up any car that was a rental car, even if it wasn't even NGO workers. They were targeting NGO workers, journalists, uh, refugees. Uh, Yeah, there were like a lot of situations like that. There was a boat that came in. that was left at sea without an engine for hours and hours, and when they finally managed to reach the port, there was a huge crowd that was waiting for them, uh, and pushing them back and not allowing them to disembark, for really for hours. A journalist was beat up very, very seriously. Basically, yeah, the situation escalated a lot, very, very fast. Um, uh, I think, well, I don't remember exactly the day, but at some point... Uh, People were gathering at the stage two, the transit camp, where we used to operate, which is about 10 minutes from our village, and it got burned down at night. And the next day, we decided to evacuate our volunteers, because we couldn't guarantee their safety anymore. And all of this was before coronavirus. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is where...
1: Is. Julie, I hear that uh, there's a lot of stories that you brought with you, um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, there's a lot of like passion and emotions uh, still behind that which uh, i can relate to i think uh, tim and i had a similar thing after like getting back from refuge mm-hmm. i do want to get a little bit more um context so uh when did you uh, arrive in lesbos when did you leave uh in your last visit and uh, where did you stay on the island
3: so i arrived um to work in lesbos with late high transfer relief. i started the 1st of December. And I left the island for the last, well, last time on the 2nd of March, I think. Which is when the staff evacuated the island too. Oh uh, yeah, I was working for Lighthouse Relief and we're based in the, on the north shore of the island, which is uh, where about 50% of people arrive crossing from Turkey. We're based in the small village that's called Skala Sekaminas, where you were with refugee roads.
1: Um, and now when you were talking about this, um, these two months, like when, when, or three months when things in, intensified, um, how did you experience that personally? Like being there, working there, as you said, like with all the media attention, but what is, was happening inside of you while these, uh, the situation went from, as you said, like, uh, just you guys being on the island in December, um, Taking care of the couple of rivals that were there to now, when when you have one out of uh, five people on the island uh, being a refugee, how did you experience that personally?
2: Maybe I should start because um, it it didn't.
3: um, Sorry, just like in terms of numbers, that's not really what happened. Like uh, when I was there in in October, there were already fourteen thousand people in Moria. Um, the numbers of arrivals on the island really increased from August, actually, 2019. Um, so, I think when you were there in April, there were just a few landings every month. I think, like, around 10, 15 landings per month. And then in August, there were 70 landings. And then it stayed really high from there on. So, like, the numbers have been increasing a lot since summer. And in December, we still had a lot of, uh, like, a lot of arrivals, a lot of landings. We had... Um, 4 landings in, in one month in December. Um, but somehow, yeah, from January, February, it really calmed down. So actually in January and February were very, very calm months compared to what we've seen, we had seen in the months before that.
1: Okay. And how did you experience these two months? I mean, in terms of like, because uh, uh, you were talking a lot about like the external events, like how the numbers have been increasing, but you being there, um, how did you feel um, like witnessing all that?
3: Um, well, it's a, it is only three months, but it really feels like much more. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think December particularly was quite exhausting because there were just so many people arriving. There were like nights where we had six boats in one night and it just kept going on and on and on. Um, but that was somehow less stressful than the, the end of February, um, It's it's kind of in between where, like, you're still living in this beautiful village and life is really nice. You're surrounded by really super nice people. You're the locals in the village are also very nice to us. You know, you're kind of living like a almost a holiday life by the sea. And then at any point, you know, like it can switch and you can have you have to, like, run in five minutes to the meeting point and drive to a boat landing where it can be like really, really bad situation. So it's really hard to kind of put it into one word, how you feel it. And you can really feel it day by day. You can't, really, I don't, I don't really know how to define it as like a, I don't really know how to answer to like, how did you feel during these three months? Because every day or every like couple hours was a different feeling in a way. The end of my stay was really very stressful, I would say. Just kind of overwhelming with, yeah, like, I mean, threats from locals, threats online, thinking about the volunteers, um, having to meet with journalists, and just every landing being like a very, very chaotic, complicated situation because of all the people there. Um, and yeah, not knowing kind of what's going to happen. What just, it also felt like, especially in the end, it felt like it was really a political game that was being played by governments and that the people that were the people were stuck in between and they were really pawns in this political game. And that's really depressing to see that, that, it's, that it's like this, this little respect for human lives kind of.
0: I have a question to follow up from that, and uh, maybe for adrian you can you can come in um mm. I think two points that you mentioned uh are you know definitely also relate to what we experience um and um you always kind of fall back into this discourse and it's very difficult to avoid it. To talk about numbers, like, you know, there were 50 landings, 70 landings, and, um, we also talk a lot about, you know, the grand scheme of how things look, like the overall situation. And I think this has also been one of the sort of critiques behind what we try to do with refugee routes. To how can we zoom in on on the individual behind that um, and I think especially when there's a lot of media presence, sometimes that focus becomes s- sort of sidelined a little bit um, i I was wondering how you feel about you managing to is there space to even <laughs> while you're doing all this work and you're super stressed of course to even zoom in on the individual and sort of have a one to one conversation or is it more like okay we need to rush through to to this location we need to get them there uh you know get get some blankets here and sort of what is the process you know behind behind your work as you as you think about and try to connect with um with the people arriving
3: from our work on the north shore we, we can't really connect with the people first we, we don't speak the language most of the time except for adrian who well, it speaks farsi so he can at least speak to them but yeah like it's a lot of a rush it's it's you know getting them out of the boat giving them emergency blankets giving them water getting them into the van um like reassuring people checking if anyone's like sick or in danger or something yeah getting them into the van you know distributing them what you need what you can and what you need and then they're they're gone in the matter of a couple hours at most so from our position we do not really have the time to talk to them individually -hmm. maybe
2: Adrian yeah I had these kind of in between conversations where people just they realize there's a person that understands them that is that looks like I mean I didn't go through all of their ways I look like you know I don't know an outsider or whatever and then people open up and tell you stories Uh, a guy, me handing out, you know, like blankets. Um, uh, what are they called? Uh, mm-hmm. c- uh, these warm blankets. What are they called? Emergency, emergency blankets. blankets. Yeah, <laughs> handing out emergency banding bl- blankets, <laughs> and while pulling an emergency <laughs> blanket over a person, him telling me like, "Yo, in Moria, is there a, a football place? Like a place where I can uh, practice, um, like my football skills? Because I'm actually like a, a professional football player and." And you're like, shit, I, I don't know if there's a football player somewhere around Moria. I don't know if you can train. He's like, yeah, I really want to train. I don't, I, I really should keep up my game. I'm planning to apply for like a European, um, It's a lot club. of <laughs> expectation management, I imagine, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. I,
0: I, to be honest, I, I think I'm always a bit, um, negatively, <laughs> I would say, amazed. By um, the sort of information that trickles or filters through to people arriving. Um, and uh, I, I wonder like, you know, the different expectations that they arrive with and then the feelings that they have once they realize a lot of that might not actually become reality. I think that's a very hard process. And I, I assume, as you just said, being in the middle of that can be really um difficult, right?
2: Yeah, especially learning to say first I cannot say that or second we cannot we don't have that for you we cannot give you that Uh, either it's like some kind of non-food item like I don't know an extra socks or whatever baby shoes um or even more important things like there was a moment one of the most impactful moments in terms of connection with people where a woman asked me for dry milk um I can go a bit more into that story if you want, because it's a really, I don't know if you, or I can tell it another time. Yeah, please do. It was, I think my first time when this transition camp, this transit camp stage two was still there and not closed and not burned down. Um, I think it was the last group of people that was there officially. And this woman was in this dry box uh, where she was changing the clothes of her child it was a 5 5 months old baby looking very pale and our medic was sitting across and looking at the baby and it, she didn't look very happy about the state of the baby and so I had to translate and ask the woman when did the baby last was last breastfed and she said well my baby do- my baby doesn't take milk it takes dry milk because I've been eating so badly I couldn't give milk to the baby and when we crossed um we had to throw out um our stuff because our boat started leaking uh, it got water in and we had to throw out all of our bags Um, and in this one bag of mine there was the rest of the dry milk that I had so right now I only have two more packs of dry milk two more rations and that's it after that I don't know how to feed my baby and then I and then you have to translate and our medic looks at me and says okay make sure she gets as much dry milk as, as you can give her right now because in Moria there's no dry milk and this is like, I don't know. It was, it's very There's hard. There no dry now. milk at all in Moria. Or... She, that's what she said. I, I cannot confirm that. Um, but in mm-hmm. that moment, that's what she told me. And I didn't know. So it was very, very hard for me. Even now, like it's, um, I'm still emotional about that. I'm still shaking a bit when I'm saying this because I can see her eyes. I can see the panic in, in this medic's eyes when she realized that this ch- child is going to have a very, very hard time
0: yeah i think it's not easy to move on from um, a place like that uh, if you're especially if you're kind of forced to leave to like pick your things and and leave uh, all of that behind and leave it in the hands of those who are still kind of there um, and uh, maybe you can just quickly talk us through those couple of hours or even days of you um, leaving the island, how much time did you actually have to prepare, and what were sort of the last things that you wanted to really make sure of? You still could do before actually leaving, um, and and um, yeah, as I said, leaving kind of everything in the hands of those still still there.
3: I mean, Adrian didn't evacuate; he left before, right. so maybe I'll answer that question. Um... Well, for us, first, we didn't really have much time to, you know, think about, I don't know, what to take, what to leave, whatever. We One day we, inter- we paused our operations, we decided we couldn't operate anymore, it wasn't safe anymore. The next day we evacuated our 20 volunteers from the island. We organized, you know, like a convoy with like several cars and someone driving in front to see if there were any roadblocks and everything. And then
2: I was really scared for you that day. <laughs> I was really shit scared. I heard she texted everything to me via WhatsApp, and I was like, thinking that every time there would be a roadblock, and they got out, would get all beaten up, and their cars would be burned. And yeah, I was scared for you.
3: Yeah, and then the next day, like the stuff. Well, we didn't evacuate all the stuff. Two people stayed behind, but the people that were there at the time, we yeah we. We just left. I mean, I packed most of my stuff because I didn't know when I was not going to come back, which turned out to be quite smart because then Corona hit when we were planning on coming back.
1: So if I got this right, you did not have to evacuate because of Corona, but because of the the atmosphere on the island.
3: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. We had to evacuate because of the, yeah, there were threats and because of attacks on volunteers and all of this.
2: I mean, I can just say as being only a volunteer and not like an official of Lighthouse, I think the people, the activists, um, everyone who was kind of following the news closer about Lesbos was really, really scared about the situation. It was extremely unsafe for one, the property of the NGOs, be it the cars and everything, but also um, at the point where this camp literally got burned down, like the transition camp, there was a, a mob of... Uh, over a hundred people or something like that. And and Julie sent me like this WhatsApp message, uh, this WhatsApp video where you could see them burning it down. Like imagine, you know, you you get images of a mob in the night, like burning down things and the the NGOs hid in their houses. They didn't go out. They locked the doors. They were so, they were fucking shit-faced afraid. And that's what you didn't say now, but it was really (laughs) dangerous.
0: I think, Florian, you wanted to come in on that?
1: Yeah, because um, I'm wondering, so with that uh, atmosphere, why do you feel like, where the or are the locals so angry at the NGO workers? Like, where did that come from, that um, atmosphere?
3: I think it's not all the locals, but I think, you know, after five years of like hundreds, thousands of people arriving on, on this island and they're living in terrible conditions, so... Of course, you know, there's incidents, of course, there's, you know, like I think, you know, like sometimes places being like a bit destroyed or some robberies and things, but also more, it's like the infrastructure of the island is not built for 20,000 extra people. There's one hospital and with 20,000 people living in the conditions they're living in in Moria, the hospital is always busy. So there's no, like, the, the locals feel like they've been robbed of their lives, basically. They're living on this beautiful, super peaceful island, and suddenly all of this happens. And in the beginning, they're super welcoming, of course, and they're there to help people. But five years later, they t- there's just no will in the EU at all to, like, actually take this burden off them. And that they're really the, the barrier. There's a shield of the EU. I mean, I think an EU leader actually described it that. Like, thank you, Greece, for being the shield but these people have never accepted to be the shield of the EU, and so it's a lot of like normal people just being angry and so fed up that they, they, they just is their only recourse to show that they're really fed up. And then of course there's far right groups that are also taking advantage of this, the, um, the Golden Dawn far right movement, um, like also I think sent some people, some fascists from all over Europe came to Lesbos. So yeah, it's a mix of the far right and just normal people being very fed up.
0: Hmm. I so just listening to that, and I know I mean we we certainly don't have all the answers, um, and there's no real answer to it, I guess, but since now let's take let's just kind of summarize a little bit here. You have the in, in, intense uh, tension between um, uh, you know different groups um, of people who kind of oppose the idea of NGOs um, helping those uh, arriving uh, to Lesvos. You have the EU-Turkey border um, situation um, with a lot of tension there. And then as an added layer on top of that, which now we know it's obviously it wasn't really the source of you having to evacuate, but it's still kind of adding to that vulnerability. You have uh, coronavirus. So with a lot of NGO workers actually being off the island right now, where do you see this going? And say, like the next three, four, five months, especially in the summertime, when statistically speaking, at least there would be more arrivals coming on the island, uh, meaning more people who would actually need the support of those people who are currently not there.
3: It's really difficult to to imagine what's going to happen. The medical NGOs are still there, and like I said, for now there isn't currently, I think, any case of coronavirus on the, on Lesbos, at least. There were a few cases, but they didn't spread much. And um, yeah, they were like, you know, healed and everything. Um, so for now it's good. Now to know what's gonna happen in the future, it's really difficult. Greece, I think the Greece government has said that they want to reopen the country for, in time for summer, because of course the country depends on tourism a lot. Um, in terms of NGOs, it really depends on each NGO how are they going to be able to rebuild their operations or bring volunteers back? And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we don't even really have the time yet to, to think of how we're going to do that, if it's possible, of
0: course. Adrian, what's your kind of take on this?
2: So I don't have a sophisticated take, and I stopped following more or less the news about Lesbos because, and that is very central of what I'm going to say here. I lost hope in a lot of things. I think that's when I was there. Um, I didn't realize that I had lost hope, but now looking at my diary, I've always written it down, of course, while I was there. But you, you don't realize how much you, you yeah, you you completely lose the hope in in institutions in the EU and what's going over there in Brussels where you are right now <clears throat> and then when you're back and you take a look at it you're just it's just so frustrating <clears throat> and so i still think that there is hope but it's not <clears throat> i i don't see it within the official institutions that are are to be taking care of this but rather in what's going on right now in Germany you know I'm in a relatively we're in Karlsruhe right now in a German city and you can see people writing leave no one behind everywhere and uh, civil society engagement is what uh, what's giving me hope right now and where I think that people who are listening this uh, being European should should think about how they can contribute to, to spreading the message that there is people in a really fucked up situation right now in, in moria and in the other camps around the uh, asian islands that's what's giving me hope right now yeah i don't know maybe you can tell us a good story from from brussels but it didn't sound like something <laughs> is going better you know i can tell you a good story
0: from brussels well first i, I just want to say that i i find it a bit heartbreaking um uh first of all i totally understand what you're saying it's just it is really heartbreaking to no and i agree with that that the people who as we just spoke about earlier make up a majority of those who are on the ground like the ngo workers the volunteers that they're kind of the ones actually also losing hope because if if they don't have the hope who who does it you know so it's kind of a, it's a very conflicted situation that we find ourselves in and i mean i just listened to this website i, I just uh, Quick note on that. It's called filesfromoria.de. And, um, the web- website just kind of, um, collates a lot of, um, videos and other stories from people who live in the camps. So, um, refugees um, themselves or rivals themselves. Um, and I just always find it so fascinating how a lot of these stories still reflect hope. Like, there's a lot of, we can still do this. There's also a lot of, like, of course, this is all problematic, but it, at least from my experience, it often ends on a note like, well, but we'll get through it eventually. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to talk and listen to these stories from the people on the ground. Um, because that is probably what's going to drive, um, yeah, uh, NGO workers and volunteers to continue to do their work. Um, and now I think, well, we're remotely that's probably very difficult so i think initiatives like this are really nice but i I don't know maybe yeah that's a question to the both of you as well whether that also reflects your kind of perception did people who arrived were they still very hopeful after you know like a few days or even weeks in the camps or was it just that initial like expectations like oh do we still have a soccer field in camoria
2: I, I mean, we only saw these people in their first moments on the island, and then they were, of course, very hopeful and certainly perceived what they arrived to—just like that beach, or even if if they were at night, staying outside in the rain and waiting for the bus to take them the hundred kilometers down, or like I don't know, like the hour down to Moria. Still, then they—it seemed, or from the from the few conversations I had. That the people were still happier than waiting out in the, in the forest on the other side, on the Turkish side, and waiting for for the smugglers to to get them into the boats or whatever whatever stories they yeah told me. Um, but but talking about hope from the volunteer perspective, sorry to bring it back to that, but I I think it's also really important that the people that are listening to this podcast right now understand that yeah, at least speaking for myself. I lost a lot of hope and it's really important to realize that there is not just like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of volunteers and a bunch of NGOs they are taking care of this because this is too big. We cannot handle this. It's really important that people understand that this is a thing, even though there's tons of NGOs and people are like donating money, which is really important, really great, but that is not all. What we really need is that people care in Europe, that people go out to the streets and create art create i don't know like spray graffitis like recently it happened with the the one-up crew and um, yeah make make other people aware i think that is that is where i draw hope from from the other side i think you always look to the other side and, and the political engagement and and that's yeah as an activist as a, as a volunteer i think i'm I'm, ho- I'm hoping for the people in europe to care
0: <laughs> julie do you have um sort of what was yeah a quick few comments on on this where do you see this going
3: yeah i mean i agree with adrian i think as an NGO worker of course you want to keep hope but especially with what happened recently you know seeing like operations that have taken years to put in place we've taken years to to find a very efficient way of responding to people's landing and to helping people we've been spotting for four years non-stop And suddenly, and this is because of Corona mostly, we've had to stop everything. And so many projects that took so long and so much effort and so much energy uh, to build have had to just stop. But like the only hope we can have is from the European leaders, like, of course I still... Hope that, you know, one day, like, European leaders are gonna wake up and realize, oh, we are human beings. (laughs) Oh, they are human beings. (laughs) And they don't deserve to be treated like worse than animals. Oh, fuck. Of course, like, that's, I mean, that's the only hope I have. Hope shouldn't come from NGO workers. We shouldn't be hoping, like, oh, there's gonna be like a hundred kids that are gonna come to the beaches and help people. The only hope we can have is, I really hope that at some point these governments are gonna stand up and realize what they're doing realize that they have a responsibility in this
0: mm. i saw some a uh, little bit of reflection from uh, i think it was in luxembourg uh, where um, some of the politicians after they because it was luxembourg germany and i think now also finland who at least took in some uh, refugee children from the greek camps um, who said that of course that's just sort of a drop in the you know in mm-hmm. the ocean um also i should probably not use that metaphor at all but um i <laughs> yeah. i think that um there is at least you know that kind of um yeah degree of uh, self-introspection and um realization that of course um a lot of what is going on right now and the actions being taken are yeah probably not not enough um especially when you see some of the headlines going a- around with um i think it was in southern greece where there was a hotel with um uh, yeah, asylum seekers being tested positive for COVID-19, um, and, uh, you know, Arizona camp being sealed off, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the- these things are happening. Um, and it's, um, yeah, as you said, it's incredibly difficult to connect these issues with, um, what is actually being taken at the higher policy levels. Um, but, uh, all the more important to talk about it, um, and try to make that connection from your viewpoints, um, I think that uh yeah we could only delve into so much uh, during these couple of few minutes but it was already very enlightening and um, to just you know get back to that mindset a little bit more on on what went um on in late february at least and um yeah I think uh maybe if you want to add a few things I always like to kind of give you the room also to pick up on uh, things that I haven't asked yet or Florian hasn't asked yet. So if there's anything you would kind of, another message you would kind of make, then please, uh,
3: please go ahead.
1: And I also would uh, just, sorry to jump in as well. I also would like to know if you guys plan on going back at all.
3: Yeah, I do plan on going back. Uh, at some point, we're going to have to restart as soon as we can, because right now there's no one there to, to help these people in case there's like an accident or anything. So, you
2: yeah, you have to actually, explain why. It's because there no one can actually arrive there. I mean, by, Greece is on
3: lockdown right now, so we can't even go. There were like 130 people that were stuck for a month, basically in the middle of nowhere. They were kept there by the, by the authorities, and, and um, we couldn't even go there because there's a lockdown, so we couldn't even bring them what we usually bring. So we, we are, our staff on the ground organized to bring this kind of stuff through other actors, through UNHCR and stuff. But, of course, it's so far from what we usually do. So, of course, I plan on going back and helping however I can to kind of rebuild um, the operations of the NGO, see how we can restart, see how we can talk with the authorities, see how we can bring volunteers back if, if possible. Um, and, yeah, I kind of set up, a, again, a, the system that we had. Um if I had to say something, I would kind of repeat what Adrian said, that, like, the situation is just getting worse, basically, day by day. Yeah. And every time you think that you've reached a breaking point, then it seems that there's just another breaking point. And... Like, the only thing that can, like, stop this from just breaking apart over and over again is... Like political will, and political will comes from, I, I hope, from society, civil society mobilizing en masse. And I think after coronavirus, like the whole of the world is going to be in a crisis. There's going to be a huge, probably a huge financial crisis, and people are going to have a lot of things to care about um, that are closer to them than the, rest of the people stuck on the Asian islands. But yeah, if I would have to say one message, it would be like, don't forget about what's happening. Like, Don't forget that there's 40,000 people stuck in horrible camps and 40,000 people that all of them, most of them at least deserve the international protection of the treaties that we have signed as Europeans. And so that is in the kind of these times that are really difficult already that we have to show that we want to defend human rights and anyone who cares about this should mobilise any way they could to push their governments to do more than what they're doing currently. Maybe Adrian wants to add something, I think.
2: No, I think you spoke well. I I feel like I want to just shout into the microphone now and be... Okay, touch on wood. It didn't happen yet. No one is. But today is what the third of um, May 2020 and so far there is no positive tested case in Moria. But what the fuck? Like, is is this the plan? I don't. I don't even know. It's it's just so outrageous. Um, a lot of those policies go kind of against
0: the, the like a lot of you know the uh, how is it, how, containing the pandemic um, policies uh, go against what we see in the camps, right? It's like overcrowding is pretty much exactly the opposite of what you would want um, in a in a pandemic. Yeah.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, neither of us has been in Moria personally, but I mean, we've heard about it enough. I think that to know that the conditions are just, it's impossible to respect any any social distancing, any hand-washing, any, like, protection at all anymore. And all the people there are so vulnerable and their immune systems are run down by, like, months, even sometimes years of staying in these conditions. So, of course, and it's, it's quite depressing to see that even in times of pandemic where you would think at least in this such a like difficult time maybe we would step up and be like okay the most vulnerable people we're going to get them out even that it's taking weeks and months to just get like 50 children out you know? <laughs> it's good it's good for these 50 children but i don't know it says something about about the eu i think <laughs>
1: All right, Adrian, um, you said you want to shout in the microphone. No, no, no this um. is... <laughs> <laughs> should <laughs> we, should we, we all shout in a microphone no, to finish this off? Uh, it's just going
2: to oversteer. Oh, and I don't even know how to, what is it called? It's, yeah, it's not going to be August nice for during. our viewers, but imagine me just screaming, shouting and even hearing her small tears dropping down on the, <laughs> on the mm. ground. And yeah, it's frustrating. It's sad.
0: It's obviously not always sort of the feeling that we want to leave audiences with, but I think it's very much what is maybe needed in this moment. So I think we'll just leave it on that note. But I think
3: the note we can leave is that like every single one of the audience members that are listening to this are actually an actor in this. Yeah. Like every single one of you can do something. You can write a letter to a representative. You can reach out to like your mayor to ask him to reach out to the person above him. Yeah. If, like every single person who's listening to this or who's not listening to this actually is a uh, is like, responsible somehow for what's happening and also has a responsibility and a role to play in potentially finding a solution for this as fast as possible.
2: And if I may add to that, I'm super thankful for every person who is actually making the effort, sitting, being confined at home in Corona times right now. And clicking on something that is probably going to depress them even more. Thank you so much for caring. This means so much.
0: I think what we'll definitely do is um, provide a few links. And I think, Adrian, I've I've seen your Facebook post. You've done that in the past as well. Kind of a few calls for action um, so that we leave people who are listening to this, uh, thankfully listening to this, with uh, some um, yeah more user-friendly ideas on how to actually um, translate what we just talked about today into into action that's great. um yeah. yeah um so and of course um also very much welcoming your input on that since i think you you very much have um the network as well so let's um pull force together a bit and try to um yeah try to make the most out of this But thanks so much for taking the time today. Um, I think we went way overboard on time, but (laughs) (laughs) we, I, it was just, it's, yeah. Oh God. I'm so sorry for you guys. (laughs) No, it just, you cannot, you cannot really just scratch the the surface when you talk about this. So you need to give it a little bit, some room to breathe. I think the, the story and to come alive because otherwise it just feels like checking a dialogue, uh, a box. I mean, so, um, yeah, but anyway, thank you so much. Um, took a lot away from this. Yeah thanks to you yeah also
1: from my side thank you for taking the time on a sunday um and uh yeah i i definitely learned a lot from your stories thanks guys thank you thank you so much